Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bible Time with Pastor Brian. I am your host, Pastor Brian, and I'm so excited to have you all uh, with me again today as we continue our dive into the book of Hebrews. Well, technically, today is our beginning of the actual dive. Last week, we did intro stuff. So today, we are going to cover the entirety of chapter 1, and I hope that you all learn from this as I have, and that the Lord is glorified through this teaching. So we'll be going verse by verse through this book. And I believe that that is the best way to get a really deep grasp and a really great hold of the material. So to recap what we talked about last time, Hebrews, penned by an unknown author, is being written to Hebrews who are struggling with being committed to their faith in Christ in the, faith of, or in the face of harsh persecution from the Jewish authorities. Some of them have even abandoned going to fellowship with other Christians in favor of appeasing the authorities and going to synagogue instead. They are discouraged, and the author is writing this book to give them a boost of morale, to hold true and strong to Christ, who is better than anything else in this world, including the traditions that they are being pressured into following. As stated last week, Hebrews reads closer to a sermon than a letter, which is part of the reason many do not believe Paul is the author. He would always begin his writings with greetings to the church or person he was writing to. Hebrews contains no such introduction, and instead it jumps straight into a message uh, that is trying to be delivered, thus making Paul an unlikely candidate as an author. Many of the ideas in Hebrews were definitely inspired by Paul's teachings, though, leading many scholars to believe that Timothy, Luke, Apollos, or someone else close to Paul in his ministry wrote Hebrews with a basis on his teachings. So verse 1 is where we're going to start off with. It begins by reminding the Hebrews that the same God being worshipped, taught about, and discussed by Christians is the one who had spoken to their fathers in many portions and in many ways. So what does the author mean by this? So let's start off with this many portions and many ways. The Greek word for many portions can mean many times or varying degrees. Over the course of the Old Testament, God revealed his plan for humanity laying the groundwork for the coming of Christ, the Messiah, to the world, to be the atoning sacrifice for mankind. However, he did not do so all at once. The Old Testament stretches a period of history that lasts around 1,500 years, showing that God chose to speak through prophets, judges, and kings incrementally. While each knew their piece of the puzzle was important, they could not have imagined the scope at which God was piecing everything together. Dozens of people, hundreds of years, numerous events and situations, all ultimately pointing to one or both of the following. Jesus Christ himself, or mankind's need for him. The author of Hebrews begins the book by addressing this reality, showing that while those men were important in paving the way, it was Jesus that they were paving that road for, and he had come to them. The many ways are through signs, wonders, prophecies, and even the lives of the people they looked up to as great giants of the faith, all directing the attention of those that study them squarely on Jesus Christ. Verse 2 introduces us to the author of Hebrews, or at least his idea of Christ. The first thing, is that God has spoken through Christ, his son. The second thing, God appointed Christ as the heir to all things. 
And three, God created all things through Christ. So what does this mean? Jesus is God. Not just like God. He is God. He didn't become God. He was and is God. He was not a created being like us. He is eternal. And it is through him that God created all things. He is the facilitator of creation. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. This cannot be said about Elijah or David or Moses or Abraham. Only Christ. Verse 3 further connects Christ to God by saying that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. John 14, 8 through 10 comes to mind here. Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father. And Jesus responds with, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This meaning is twofold. On one hand, Jesus is the physical incarnation of God. So he is God in the flesh. On the other hand, Jesus is the perfect representation of God's character. So those who have seen Jesus' actions and heard his teachings have seen and heard from God. He is also the one who sustains creation and has been given the place of authority at God's right hand after making the way for purification for sins. For centuries, those who worshipped Yahweh were required to make sacrifices to atone for sins as a covering and payment of blood. Now Jesus has become the ultimate sacrifice, covering and paying for the sins of all those who put their faith in him and his finished work on the cross. Verse 4, through his sacrifice and his existence as God and man, his name is greater than anything given to the angels. Acts 4.12 comes to mind. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Why? because no other name is worthy. Not Gabriel's, not Michael's. And going back to what I said a minute ago, not Elijah, David, Moses, or Abraham's. No, no other name but the name of Jesus can save. Verse 5. So Psalm 2-7 is what is quoted here, just as it was in Acts 13 during a sermon given by Paul. You are my son, today I have begotten you. The psalm is one of David's psalms about the Lord's anointed one. Old Testament prophecies pointing to the one sent by the Lord to save his people. Why bring this up? Well, Jews would know Psalm 2, especially ones that had spent quite a bit of time around synagogues and rabbis, as this had always been viewed as part of the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. So obviously bringing this up is going to pull in a lot of remembrance of teachings and times that these people had spent learning about the Psalms and about this anointed one that was coming. It says, and again, isn't it interesting that even an ancient sermon that is part of the Bible, there are numerous references to previous scriptures. It's almost as if the author is on to something with pulling all these Old Testament references into the message to get the point across. Jesus has been prophesied since the beginning, and there is no one better or greater than he is. 
numerous passages contain the next phrase. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. A lot of them were in reference to Solomon and the construction of the temple, the greatest architectural image of God's majesty and glory ever constructed by mankind. God promised to David that he would make Solomon as if he was his own son, chastising him and correcting him as needed. God does not say these things to his angels. Deuteronomy 32.43 gives the basis for the reference in verse 6. All of the angels and all other heavenly beings worship at the feet of Jesus, as he is God and is to be worshipped as such. Verses 7, 8, and 9 give a contrast between the angels and Jesus. Of the angels, it says that God can make anything to be a messenger, such as the winds or the flames of fire. It comes from Psalm 104.4. But of Jesus, his throne is forever, and he is anointed above all others, born in the flesh. It comes from Psalm 45.6-7. Jesus was more than just a messenger from God. He is God. He was God. And he forever will be God. Verses 10 through 12 come from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Since God laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with his own hands, and Christ was the one through which creation happened, Christ is God and was with God in the beginning. Everything else changes and passes away. Kingdoms rise and fall. Mankind repeats the same cycles constantly. Build. Prosper. Crumble. They lay their works on foundations made of sand. They prosper for a season. Then just as could have been foretold at the beginning, they crumble and falter. After this, humans build something else, on the same foundations, and with the same broken pieces, trying in vain to be better than their predecessors. Each attempt is stronger and more convinced than the last that they will be the ones to succeed. But they fall apart just the same. While this might be the reality for mankind, it is far from the truth with God. His reign has no end. His kingdom is never conquered, his power is never diminished, and his glory is never outshone. Verse 13, God has never told the angels to sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies his footstool. Why? Because God uses his angels to deliver messages and to carry out divine judgment on the world and its inhabitants, both physical and spiritual ones. They exist to serve God not to be his equal or his beloved son. That title is reserved for Christ alone. Verse 14 asks a rhetorical question to the reader that can be summed up with this. Aren't the angels just spirits with a message for the people they are sent to by God? Yes, they are. They are more powerful than humans. Don't get that confused. And they are much older than humans but they are not as powerful nor as ancient as God himself. He is before them. He created them. Who is he? God? Yes. Jesus? Also yes. The Holy Spirit? In a word, 
Yes, those who claim to serve the one true God cannot help but to serve Christ as well, as he is God made flesh, the exact and perfect representation of God's nature and character. He is before all, and through him everything was made. His majesty demands worship. And these Christians the author is writing to, these former Jews that are now saved by the grace of God, would do good to remember that. Jesus is more than a mere mortal. He is God incarnate. He is righteous. He is better. Let's pray. God, as we come before you here today, we're just so blessed and thankful and grateful for this time that you've given us to spend in your word. We're so thankful for this passage in Hebrews chapter 1 that reminds us who you are. And that no matter anything that we see, no matter who it is, angels or people that we look up to, God, you are better. Jesus is better. Even though serving him might cost us something, even though it might cost us everything, God, you've promised us that it will be worth it, that you are worth it. You are worthy of our worship and our sacrifice and our praise. And God, I pray that you give us the courage and the strength to continue on in that and to carry on this message of Hebrews 1, that no matter what this world has to offer, Christ is better. We love you, and God, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you next time.